Velkommen til Rockwoolfondens podcast. Denne podcast er på engelsk. Everybody owns exactly one worker, which is themselves. I read that I thought, what in God's name do you do at age 94? How much do we value the human behind it? Namely, do we merely value a result, an outcome? I want my accounting done, the end. Whether there's a human or not, I couldn't care less. Or do we value something about the human? What we have now is we have a labor market that's tight enough that people say, well, I, I need to allow my employees to work from home, and if I surveil them too much and make their jobs too unpleasant, they'll quit and go elsewhere. Welcome to the Rockwell Foundation podcast, where we today delve into the continuously evolving world of labor markets. My name is Thomas Smith-Jorgensen. Welcome along. This podcast is brought to you from Berlin, where leading economists from around the globe are gathered at a conference to collaborate on the Handbook of Labor Economics. This conference here in Berlin is hosted by the Institute for the Economy and the Future of Work at the Rockwell Foundation Berlin, which was launched recently. During this podcast, you'll be able to hear highlights from a panel discussion attended by the world's top economists discussing the future of work. In the studio here at the Humboldt University in Berlin, we had the pleasure of talking to professor and director of the Rockwell Foundation Institute in Berlin, Christian Dustmann, and economist and professor Thomas Lemieux from the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia. They are the organizers of the conference and the editors of the Handbook of Labor Economics. Professor Dustmann and Professor Lemieux will help us explore the main topics from the panel discussion and give us insights into the future landscape of work. The main objective of the conference in Berlin was to gather all the contributors of the Handbook of Labor Economics. And I started by asking Professor Dustmann to explain the role of this special book that's been around for nearly 40 years. Well, the Handbook of Labor Economics basically summarizes the frontier research over the last one and a half decades. We are now editing volumes six uh, and five. There have been many volumes before us and uh, every volume has been a key source of reference for basically the entire cohort of young students, uh, the entire profession and uh, basically all labor economists globally. So it's a very big thing. And it's a very important publication. The first volume was being published almost 40 years ago and the latest one in 2011. Why is it time for a new edition? Well, the reason, main reason why there's time for a new edition is that there's lots of fascinating research that's been uh, done over the last 10 or 15 years. So really what we've assembled is essentially the best mind in the profession who can there respective field, you know, tell us what are, have been the most important and transformational uh, research. If I, if I may add, so labor economics and applied economics has really become very important. And if you look at the last three Nobel Prizes, uh, two of them went to labor and applied economists. Uh, and I think that shows you how important uh, that particular field is considered, not just in economics, but also more more widely. In both your opinions, what are the most important contemporary topics for a new handbook on labor economics? Uh, one key topic is the importance of uh, imperfect competition. You know, the dream world of uh, very competitive uh, labor markets is gone. And that's in large part because we have much better data now. 
uh, about firms and their employers, especially much better data in Europe. I mean, one of the uh, important change compared to previous issues that there's uh, m much more Europeans involved and that's uh, reflecting the fact that lots of the new research, for instance, on the importance of imperfect competition comes from uh, Europe. Yes, and uh, certainly uh, also uh, we have seen a dramatic development of uh, technologies over the last 15, 20 years uh, with respect to their impact on labor markets, the robotization uh, of the workplace, for instance, uh, the computerization, the digitalization, uh, we are talking now about AI, and all that has been, uh, well, reflected, of course, uh, in the economic literature. But then there were also very important developments uh, in more traditional areas, like uh, the family, uh, like uh, labor supply of females, uh, of course, also institutional aspects, the minimum wage. We think very differently now about the minimum wage, and it is conservative governments uh, who implement minimum wage uh, increases rather than governments who are left-leaning. So these have been all uh, very important developments, and uh, we will see that reflected in the new handbook of labor economics. What are your expectations for this conference? Uh, well, first, that we're everybody in that room is going to learn a lot about what's been uh, going on in the field. But another very important thing happening at the conference is the interaction between the different authors working on the the chapters, and it makes a huge difference to be able to be all together and have formal and more informal discussion. And we think, as a result, that's going to be a much uh, stronger handbook than if we were just all sitting in our offices less north out and they're trying to write uh, good chapters. A central part of the conference in Berlin was a panel discussion about the future of work. The panel discussion brought together esteemed experts, including David Orta from the MIT, Ioana Marionescu from the University of Pennsylvania, Kervin K. Charles from Yale, and David Deming from Harvard. The panel was moderated by Chris Giles from the Financial Times, and it can be watched on YouTube. It was a discussion around the future of work and what key factors will play a part in tomorrow's labor market. I asked Professor Dustman and Professor Lemieux about the intention behind the panel looking into the future and about what they thought were the key takeaways. Well, I mean, the future of work is, uh, of course, at the core of labor economics. We, uh, we can only, as, as economists, we can only basically analyze what happened in the past. We are also expected to look into the future. So politicians, uh, the public, want to know how do these experts actually think about how our labor markets are developing, how our economies are, are developing, and what are the things we should expect uh, in future. So while the handbook uh, is looking back at uh, the frontier research over the last 10, 15 years, uh, the panel discussion was meant to say, okay, look, that's where we are standing. Let's have a look into the future uh, and into the topics which may actually be covered in the next edition in 10 or 15 years. Professor Lemieux, what did you see as the key takeaways from the panel discussion? Well, there was, of course, lots of discussion about AI. It's a little bit uh, unavoidable when we think about the future of work. But, you know, I think there were very important nuances uh, thinking about, for instance, what are going to be the skills of the, the future that are actually going to be uh, useful to, uh, 
to workers in this world where technology is is, uh, is changing. And some of the panelists also mentioned this is not the first time there's technological change uh, affecting the, the labor market. And it's important also to take a pause. I mean, AI is not going to change everything. And the kind of more traditional topics being covered in the handbook, like uh, skill acquisition, the role of labor market institutions and policies are, we have actually great chapters on that in the handbook, and these issues are going to be, become even more important uh, with these uh, new uh, technological changes. AI definitely was a central topic in the panel discussion. David Alter, for instance, had an interesting point that AI could potentially enforce skilled workers without a college degree. AI may also enable people with lower levels of education, without as much elite knowledge, to carry out more important tasks because it can complement their expertise and provide guidance and guardrails, form function as a kind of a co-pilot. So right now, most medical tasks, many of them, are done by people with an MD. But increasingly, at least in the US, they're also done by nurse practitioners who have a master's degree. Technology can enable, AI can enable more people to do a good job of diagnosing, to uh, do some more treating, uh, treatment, and even prescribing, not people without medical expertise, but people with less formal expertise. This could also be true in software development. This could also be true in skilled repair if you are uh, in the trades, if you're doing, uh, if you're an aircraft mechanic. So there are many ways that the hope, or my hope, and I'm going to stop, uh, is that AI will not just displace expertise, but it will actually reinstate skilled work for people without college degrees. Now, when I say it will, that's really the wrong term because AI is not going to do any of this itself. This is a this is a matter of choice of how we implement, how we build out AI. And I think this is a moment where intentionality is critical. How, what we can do with AI is many things. What we will do with it is a just question of priorities. And in my view, the best use of it at this point for countries like the ones uh, you guys are in or I'm in now is to is to make labor more valuable, especially workers who do not have elite skills, to enable them to do more expert work. I asked Professor Lemieux if he agreed with the points made by David Alter. I think uh, the, the point I found the most interesting is that, you know, over the last decades, highly skilled workers, highly educated workers did really, really well. And that may be in part because of the technological change that uh, happened. And as David was saying, the uh, expertise is, uh, is a rare skill, highly valued. But actually, uh, AI could uh, change that and actually uh, help workers more at the bottom of the distribution who've been struggling, but then it gives them new tools to be able to uh, become a little more experts uh, in their um, own work. So that could actually reduce inequality after uh, all this increase in inequality. So, so I thought that was actually a very important message from uh, David Otter's discussion. Yeah. Following up on the role of digitalization and AI, David Deming of Harvard University referred to what he calls soft skills, or more precisely about how human skills will fit into the future of work. Well, if you think about how work has changed since the commodification of information that was the digital information communication technology revolution, it, it really, in, in settings ranging from a retail bank where they had optical character recognition to a valve manufacturing plant where they adopted cu- computer numerically controlled machines, so instead of the person physically cutting the valve, you could program a machine to do it. 
Um, in all those different types of settings, white collar, blue collar, in the US and abroad, you could see that it caused jobs to shift towards these kinds of, this reliance on these kinds of soft skills. So, you know, they would reorganize the factory floor so that workers um, communicated more, so they could figure out, okay, we have a custom batch coming through, you use that machine, I'll use this one, let's time it in a way to optimize uh, our throughput. And uh, they hired people with higher levels of education, they required different sets of skills that were things like problem solving, like we've got a really complex thing and you have to adapt to it. And what I take from that, you know, you know uh, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that the same skills that were valued um, at the dawn of the digital age will be valued going forward with AI, but I actually think it's a pretty good bet, and I wanna try to convince you uh, of that. Uh, I think the reason is that what we're really looking for is people who can fill in the blanks from a routine process, you know, this um, routinization of um, production started with physical tasks, you know, a bulldozer rather than a shovel. Uh, and it's moved to the routinization of information processing tasks. And so anything where you can clearly delineate the, the steps all along the line, we found a way to uh, automate, either through AI technology or through some physical machinery. And uh, I think it's a, good, it's a good summary, this is probably not literally true, but it's close, close to true, that you can um, create or program a machine to do any one thing better than a human, no matter what that thing is. But people are general purpose technologies. People can shift from doing uh, numerical calculations to operating machine to talking with each other uh, all at once and quite flexibly in response to a changing environment. And I think that's still, to this day, we never know what the future holds, but this day still is the human advantage over machines, AI is our flexibility and our adaptability. Commenting on David Deming's views on soft skills and what they will mean in connection to AI, Professor Dustman said. Well, yes, I mean, that has been a topic uh, which has uh, kind of, well, I would say even dominated some of the debate in, uh, in labor economics. Uh, soft skills uh, which were never considered uh, to be, uh, well, very important, partly because they are very hard to measure, uh, and we have made tremendous progress in, in measuring such skills, uh, turn out to be, to be important, to be a good team player, to, be a, to have leadership qualities, to be able to... Uh, coordinate things uh, in the workplace uh, above skills and uh, education uh, seems to be uh, incredibly important for productivity of firms. Um, and uh, I thought overall, I thought that Kervin's, uh, Kervin Charles, who is um, a, a world, I mean, they were all world leading experts. We had an absolutely fantastic panel uh, coming from the best schools in uh, the US, so it was really illuminating and I thought very, very exciting. Kervin Charles' points on how new technologies uh, basically affect the differences between different groups in the labor market. Do they increase uh, disadvantage uh, of minority groups or do they help minority groups? It's of course a very important, uh, very important issue. What's AI going to do for the inequalities in wages, earnings, job productivity, and the like, along some of the dimensions I've mentioned? I'm not sure. On, nor is anyone, I think. On the one hand, one could argue that to the extent that, uh, that minority groups or persons at the bottom end of the earnings distribution don't have access to AI tools, um, then they might be especially hurt from the surge in this new innovation in our lives. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't know if anyone's had the experience of having AI quickly edit something they wrote, just to check for grammar or something. It's astoundingly good and getting better by the day. 
Now, my grammar is pretty decent. I can imagine a different Kerwin whose grammar is not so great, for whom the ability to run something he wrote by an editor would be especially helpful. How AI will play out, interacted with various inequalities, is something we don't know and something I'm really keen to see. At the very end of the panel discussion, Professor Dussman raised the question as to whether perhaps AI gets too much focus in the discussion about the future of work. I asked him why he asked that question. Well, uh, the, the thing is that public debates on any issue tend to overshoot. So that means if, if, if something radical happens, everybody talks about that and it shocks uh, the public, it shocks experts. Um, well, after one or two years, very often it turns out that, uh, well, these things are important, but they are put much more in context. So what was quite remarkable yesterday is actually uh, the power of AI in the sense uh, how it has, uh, through the introduction of chat GPT, for instance, uh, well, affected the public debate. That was a real shock uh, to the academic community, to the public, uh, to experts uh, who haven't uh, foreseen uh, the incredible possibilities that actually arise. And I think the debate yesterday was very much dominated uh, by that. Uh, and that was the point I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to make, actually. Do you agree with that, Thomas? Yes. Yeah, Christian and I almost always agree. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but we definitely uh, agree on, uh, on this one. And maybe to raise uh, two other issues about the... The panel, I really like Ioana, who uh, knows well about uh, the policy context, especially in the US, did a very nice job, you know, uh, <clears throat> connecting these uh, AI, the development of AI with the regulatory uh, framework of the future. We have important social choices to, to make here. And in particular, we have to ask ourselves, you know, who owns these AI tools now? Who will own them in the future? And who will benefit from whatever returns this technology uh, is creating? So that raises the topic of uh, optimal regulation, taxation, a lot of topics that we love to study in economics. And you know, I think this is more than ever uh, a topic of great importance that we should uh, think more about. And the future of work is going to depend on the policies that we decide to put in place or decide not to put in place. If we decide to stick with the status quo, that's also a choice. And that's going to influence um, you know, firms' decisions, workers' decisions uh, going forward. I asked Christian Dussmann, who is the director of the Institute, on how important it is for the Rockwell Foundation in Berlin to be able to play a significant part in both the conference and the development of the Handbook of Labour Economics. Well, we, we consider ourselves as an institute with very high ambitions. So um, the idea of Rockwell Foundation uh, Berlin is basically a, a wider uh, more European and potentially also more global reach out uh, than the existent, existing uh, excellent institute uh, in, in Copenhagen. Uh, and as such, we, uh, of course, want to reach out to the very best people in the field. So uh, this conference, which brings together uh, the top experts uh, on work which has been uh, produced over the last 10, 15 years, 
uh, is exactly where Rockwool Foundation Berlin wants to be in the future. We want to be at the very top. What will be the distinction between the work here at Rockwool Foundation Berlin and the Rockwool Foundation in Copenhagen? Well, Rockwool Foundation uh, Copenhagen uh, is 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 widely known for for the excellence uh, of their research. Um, however, it is uh, conceptualized to to focus slightly more on questions which are important in the Danish context directly. So they look at Danish data, at Danish questions. Rockwool Foundation. Uh, Berlin will take a wider view. We will look at uh, questions uh, that are important for Europe, for the welfare uh, of societies uh, in Europe. But of course, Denmark uh, is a European country. So what happens in Germany, what happens in Italy, what happens in France will have an important impact also on Denmark. So uh, in a way, we look at the indirect uh, effects uh, of what happens Uh, around uh, Europe uh, on uh, Denmark, on the Danish society, on the Danish economy. And in a global world, uh, in an internationalized world in which we are today, uh, Germany, Denmark, Italy, the European Union is strongly affected by anything which happens, for instance, in Asia, what happens in China, uh, what happens in the Middle East today, what happens in Russia, what happens around the world. Uh, so we will also take uh, a global view, looking at processes, uh, for instance, in Asia, the development we are seeing currently in China, and how that affects, uh, first of all, Europe, and secondly, uh, Denmark as a European country, uh, and as a country which is directly affected by these processes. Looking forward, what is the primary goal of the Rockwell Foundation Berlin Institute, its research and impact on public discourse? What is the ambition Well, our ambition is uh, the same ambition than uh, that of the Rockwool Foundation. So we want uh, to uh, conduct uh, independent uh, research at the highest uh, possible level uh, for uh, the sake uh, to improve welfare in society. Could you elaborate on some of the current research areas and projects being undertaken by the Rockwool Foundation Institute in Berlin? Yes. Yeah, so at the moment, so the, the the way our research agenda is structured is we have basically three big blocks. Uh, one of them is equity, uh, inclusion, uh, and opportunity. Uh, another one is migration uh, and uh, uh, international collaboration. A third one is technology, trade, and human capital. And if you look at what is discussed at this conference, uh, well, the different chapters in the handbook fit uh, into one. Uh, or even more of those themes. If you look at our research agenda, uh, which has been populated now uh, by more than uh, 10 large research projects, and we will uh, continue uh, with more projects in the future, then again, they can be uh, organized uh, under those uh, themes. Well, to give, you, um, to, give you, to give you an example, for instance, uh, important uh, for uh, Europe uh, is uh, the issue of inequality. So we have uh, a few projects which try to understand the evolution of inequality. How does inequality uh, uh, actually um, uh, relate to modern labor markets, to the topic uh, of the panel, uh, to new technologies? Uh, how does that impact uh, on uh, the way uh, individuals move over their life cycle uh, through uh, different segments of the labor market? How does it affect uh, their 
position in the wage distribution, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We look at things uh, which are um, uh, related directly to technology. Uh, so how does technological progress affect the workplace? Who are the workers? Uh, who are, which are the jobs uh, which may actually be affected? And who are the workers uh, on those jobs who are affected? How can education shield workers? How can institutions protect workers uh, when new technologies uh, are implemented? We look at minimum wages. How can uh, the minimum wage be an instrument uh, for redistribution? Uh, we look at uh, the uh, way employers are, um, uh, employers are negotiating with unions. Uh, can we learn something uh, from the different models we see in Europe for other countries, uh, for instance, for Denmark? Uh, are there lessons uh, to be learned, etc., etc.? So these are all issues which are at the forefront uh, of the public debate uh, and, uh, well, where uh, addressing these questions is very important for the welfare of society, and that's actually uh, our ultimate objective. Thank you to Professor and Director of the Rockwell Foundation Institute in Berlin, Christian Dussmann, and to Economist and Professor Thomas Lemieux for hosting the conference and for welcoming the Rockwell Foundation podcast. The Handbook of Labour Economics, Volume 5, is expected to be published in October 2024, and the sixth volume will be published a couple of months later. To read much more about the work and research at the Rockwell Foundation Institute in Berlin, please go to rfberlin.com. In the Rockwell Foundation podcast, I talk to researchers and decision makers about new research and analyses related to welfare. Find them at the rockwellfoundation.dk or wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast was produced by me, Thomas Medjorgensen and Nikolai Winden. Thank you very much for listening.